you look at how silent it is now. Okay, listeners, I'm worried about our boy Will. Our baby boy's <laughs> in in deep trouble over here. Uh, Let's set aside the fact that he's been eating four dips for dinner every day. No. As we all know, that's pretty much par for the course at this point. I basically had my appetizer after I had my main meal yesterday. You missed the beautiful, bountiful salad that I... You want to take that again in the context of me fat shaming you that you ate a meal (laughs) and then you had four dips? Yeah, because like an appetizer. the four dips are like the appetizer. It's like, you know, the dip trio at your local Chili's or Applebee's yeah. establishment served with bo- both tortilla chips and some warm pretzels. After an entree. An entree salad, so it doesn't count. Okay. Counts less. Listen, I was trying to get past this. I was about <laughs> to say, setting aside the fact that my man is eating fucking four dips all the time. <laughs> Imagine the sight. Listeners, I'm not going to move past it now that you've <laughs> instigated me. Imagine the sight that I have to behold nightly as a man hunched over his phone or laptop has a spread of four <laughs> dips in front of him that he doesn't bother to decant. I'm not talking about a scoop on a plate. Why I'm are talking we, about, I'm talking why about are we four it? liters of material <laughs> No, in cor- front of a bald they're man little container. who's sweating. Eating it so <laughs> vigorously and nervously. I was not eating. Little ner- did I know he'd I was already not eating eaten nervously. dinner. Yes, you were. No, I was yes, not. Yes, you were. You were frantically checking an email or looking at a spreadsheet or something. Oh, now, I was doing spreadsheets yesterday. Yeah, this was my main point. Is I'm worried about our boy. He's he's <laughs> pounding the dips relentlessly because he's working like it's 1858. <laughs> he's had a 12-hour workday, uh-huh. seven days a week, uh-huh. for what seems like months now. It's only been like two weeks. Like it's a factory in South Essex. Like you're milling textiles. Yeah. You know, you're deep in you're deep in your industry all day. I mean, I literally gave gave blood today because uh, a blister on my feet from standing and running. I was oh like, ooh, ooh it burst. It hurts. You know, and I got to get up early. So now we're recording late. I'm tired as shit. Will's yeah. tired as shit. Dead as shit. Yeah, but, you know, so listener, imagine my scene when I walk in and I see someone delightfully relaxed with a uh, a tequila soda enjoying a podcast giggling to themselves on the couch i go huh i wish you're supposed to be allowed to have a few hours in your day where that happens you do realize that yeah, that's right? why i'm leaving work early tomorrow oh Everybody that's good can suck it leaving work early means getting off at like seven six I'm leaving at six. Everybody, shut I, I, it. As all as our listeners are familiar with from the last conversation, you do know that that just means you're leaving work on time for the first time yeah, yeah, in yeah. two weeks. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's yeah. leaving early uh-huh. in your book. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. If anybody can get in touch with the AFL CIO <laughs> and tell them that we have Who a, that? a downtrodden that's a union conglomerate. Oh well. That we have a downtrodden employee who's being taken advantage of. Uh, I think we need we need our army to step in for you because this is getting out of this is getting out of hand and it's affecting the show. 
<laughs> that's my primary concern is that it affects this show. I'm ready to podcast. You know, I come home, I eat my dinner, mm-hmm. I sit down, I relax for an hour, and I'm like, "Where's Will? Let's let's get going." I'm yeah. feeling good, but now it's like 9 p.m. or some shit. I'm ready to fucking go to bed. Yeah, I know. You're going to bed at 8.30, Grandpa? I'm getting old, man. I got to watch at least three or four episodes of Deep Space Nine before I can truly settle into the pillow, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. At this rate, I'm not getting to bed till 1.30 now, probably. Why? Because I have to watch the last few episodes of season six. It's a 10-episode arch, and I refuse to uh, stop in the middle. You can't just want... Watch one and be like, ooh, nappy time. Oh, it's season seven, by the way. I don't want the Trekkies out there to get angry at me. Okay. Yeah, so many Trekkie listeners that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we we do want to give a special shout out to our, our one uh, Patreon subscriber name who I forgot. Yes, thank you for that. A big shout out to Alicia P. Thank you. Alicia P., you're this week's winner. You receive nothing. Throw something on the Patreon for her. Give I'll her a special. I'll episode. try to figure it out. But as we were just discussing, I don't exactly have a ton of time either, man. I mean, I got to sit down and relax. You know. And what are you doing Saturday? I'm relaxing to prepare for this show next Wednesday. Okay, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> but you're right in doing that. Thank you, Alicia P. That was really nice. I will try to throw something up on the Patreon, or maybe at least message her or something. Uh, it's worth noting, as I pointed out to you when we discovered Alicia P. Mm-hmm. Uh, she subscribed to our patreon at 3 53 a.m so alicia if you're out there and you were a little drunk we didn't mean to remind you i'm pulling out the men in black neuralizer right now okay uh what you saw was a weather balloon (sighs) uh, in combination with some swamp gas that created a light i got nothing to (laughs) respond to on that one it sounds like you're mocking her and i shan't do that to our benevolent patron i'm not mocking i'm not mocking our benevolent mm-hmm. baron she's baron class oh yeah she is baron and class thank oh, you very right. much for that that was really sweet oh i missed oh, the baron de Mon- Mon- monkey yard uh, so do i oh well and it's a reminder to the rest of our listeners because we never talk about it that the patreon yeah. does exist and there are three episodes up there right now yeah soon uh, to be a fourth okay and a fifth well let's, maybe let's not push it <laughs> You love signing me up for work. You're just jealous because... You have to push a button. You're you're just jealous because you work 12 hours a day and you want to pass some of that off yeah, to yeah, me, yeah. but I will not let you exploit me. I'm really good at delegating. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a really amazing delegator. That's how I get shit If done. by delegating, refusing to do absolutely anything at all for this podcast except for show up. I do the Instagram. Suck it. Oh, man. Okay, fine. I have to come up with witty retorts and f- Google images and maybe go only to the second page to find something. Yeah, <laughs> listeners, I'll, I'll leave it to you <laughs> to decide which takes longer, making an Instagram post or uh, editing this podcast. But anyway. It takes about two hours to edit this podcast. That is, that is correct, yeah. Does that Instagram post, is you know, are you counting two 20 hours? 20 minutes. Okay. There's passive labor involved. Yeah, I got I to gotta let it ruminate, figure out what I want to do. I have to usually, like, listen to the episode, you know. Because I don't remember what we talk about. Because mm-hmm. I'm old and everything. What's the What's the thing? Mind is like a sieve. That sounds right. Mind what is, what is a sieve? Is that a thing that you sift stuff? No, it's like through? a filter. It's, it's like got a holes. Filter. Yeah. But yeah, it is like a more like like when you're sifting flour for a baked good, you right. do it through a sieve. Right. Your mind has holes. Big gaping holes. Pub cheese <sighs> and salsa verde. I I have not been eating any <laughs> salsa verde. Thank you very much. Um, uh, no, what my my quadrant of dips is very tightly refined at this point. You've got your fresh, fresh healthy dip, which is the salsa. This is just vegetables. 
Okay, I no mean, I, I guess I can't really object to that. Although I'm sure there's salt and sugar in copious amounts in the salsa. Keep that, keep that in mind. I doubt there's sugar, but I do think salt, yes. There's absolutely. some sugar. I guarantee mm. you there is. I don't think TJ's would do me dirty like that. Yeah, they would. Yes. Yeah, they, yeah, they would. would. Um, the hummus is protein. Okay. A lot of fat. A lot of fat. A lot yeah. of oil in there. A yeah. lot of oil. Um, pub cheese is just fat ass. Yeah, I was just going to say the hummus, by, by, by dip two, we're, we're really stretching we're really the definition stretching of out. health. Keep in mind also that the tortilla chips that you're scooping all of this up with. Or just salt bombs? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm aware. Okay. I'm surprised my heart doesn't beat out of my chest on the on a daily basis because of now. Wait, my what's blood dip? What is dip for? <laughs> it's a white one that looks like <laughs> Alfredo sauce, but I don't actually know what it is. Bacon cheddar ranch sauce. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, by dip two, we're you're supposed to eat that with vegetables, I think, and I don't. Well, truthfully, you're probably not supposed to eat that at all. Or, like, put it on, like, a schmear to put on a burger yeah, and maybe do, like, a teaspoon. That's a thing you bring to a picnic that everybody has, like, less than a tablespoon uh-huh. of each. Yeah. But keep in mind, yeah, I mean, you're... And you're, I take it to pound you're town. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. yeah. So by dip two, we're stretching the definition of help. By dip four, we're stretching the definition of dip. That's just... Th- that's basically a pie filling. It's more of, like, a... Hmm. I don't know what it is, but it's not good for it you. It looks like the inside of manicotti mixed with clam chowder. Ew. Why are you trying to make it bad for me? <laughs> don't do that. No. I'm I'll, trying to help you. I'm I'll, just trying to listen, help you. Listen, the only thing I ate today was uh, some granola and some yogurt with some strawberries. Oh, man. Okay. All right. I mean, let's get... Let, we can, so I was healthy. We can move on from your diet. I know you're self-conscious about it, but... No, I think I lost weight today. I, that is not how that works. Why? You know, it's I didn't eat that much. Dieting is about consistency, Will. You know, you have to get into a consistent pattern of behavior. It's not about this these wild swings from eating almost nothing to eating four liters of dip. Okay, it's not liters. <laughs> it's not liters. Um, so you mean I can't have like you know go like you know famine today and then Nashville hot chicken from Shake Shack tomorrow? Yeah, I don't really think that's how that works. Like hmm. people that intermittent fast are still eating relatively healthy the rest of the time. Oh. I mean, yeah, you can't have, like, aspects (laughs) of cheat day every day. You can't do intermittent fasting with, like, a medium hot and ready pizza? I mean, honestly, you probably could. You wouldn't, you know, you... It would be terrible for you. Weight-wise, you might be fine, but your body composition would be horrible, and you would feel horrible. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you restricted your calories and ate nothing but pizza, I mean, this is what the fucking... Vegans uh, in high school? No, this does happen to vegans a lot, but no, that that Morgan Spurlock guy that did that McDonald's documentary where he oh, yeah. ate nothing but McDonald's for 30 days, supersize yeah. me. Uh-huh. Basically, that's what he did. I, he wasn't counting calories, but yeah. you could look at it in the same light where like he was just trying to see how you would feel, and it turns out you feel like shit because there's nothing of value yeah. in McDonald's or a Little Caesars Hot and Ready. Yeah. But sure, if you wanted to lose weight, you could intermittent fast and just eat four slices of that every other day, probably. Ugh, God. You'd still be flabby be and so disgusting and bald. Oh, just be. Sw- no. <laughs> what does bald have to do with this, you fucking cunt? <laughs> Slow your roll. Nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's bringing that back. <laughs> I'm eating something green. Suck it. Yeah, the, the reason this all came up is that Will uh, aggressively tried to open a package <laughs> of snacks at the beginning of the show. It's seaweed. It's and now 30 he's calories. eating on the show. 30 calories of seaweed. I eat on the show, too. Remember that? I ate pizza on the show. Mm-hmm. I thought that was gross. At least the seaweed is like, mm, it's a healthy crunch. Yeah. 
Granted, is it dusted with teriyaki flavoring? I had no choice. That's it was just the only salt. option. That's yeah, just salt and s- powdered soy sauce. It's probably. An MSG, yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. I love MSG. Mm-hmm. Fuck me. Mm. Mm. MSG. Ah, uh, yes. But Cheez Its are. Cheez Its are just MSG. Shitloads of MSG in yeah. there. Yeah. That's why once you pop, oops, I'm done. No, it's really true. I mean, I, I have a really hard time, admittedly. Cheez Its are like Pringles for me. Once that box is open, it's probably gonna be gone i mean sh- shall i recount to the to the listener or the viewer uh all the times i've gotten a replacement box of cheese it's delivered to my shelf because someone has a oh yeah that's happened a, a little a little squirrel had a half a bottle of tequila and went hmm cheese it's yeah i, I do gonna, do that i'm gonna there was a tear time those too fuckers that out <laughs> where uh i i ate your entire box of cheese it's the next day i went and replaced it and I think then you the did next the same night thing. i ate it again <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask. I was going to say, I don't think I ever got to those. I didn't eat the entire box that time. But it was I very ate, light. I ate seven eighths of it. Very light. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it from you. I know. I make, a, I make a big show of it, but I'm guilty myself, as, mm. as we all are, you know? It's hard to try and stay disciplined. I don't know her. Yeah, you don't. No. It's true. It's your, it's your dip addiction, honestly. <laughs> I mean, so many aspects of my life. I'm like, well, why don't you just a little eat? bit can't hurt. I feel, nom, like nom, a, nom, nom. I feel like I've recommended this to you before, but I feel like you should just be a soylent person. You seem to like food in liquid form, more or less. I guess you're attached to the chips at this point. I love a crunch. But maybe you should just lose all your teeth somehow. Stop what? brushing them and then just eat liquid foods. So you want me to ba- be bald, gummy, and eat liquids? Uh, I don't. Yeah, that's only one step away from what you're already doing. I mean, okay. I'm just trying to take it to the next level. I'm trying to help you. This is a this is a self help podcast for you. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. I'm, I already look like you know, I'm 54 years old. Have the no hair, the slight paunch. All right, now you're throwing a pity party, and I don't like this. Stop feeling bad for yourself. You don't look 54. No, somehow I don't have any wrinkles. You look a spry 51. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> At least I'm not wrinkling. I, if I was wrinkling, it'd be terrible. It's only a matter of time. I mean, I don't know. know. Like, you get a little fat, no wrinkles. That's true. Maybe, pl- the, maybe this is a self-protective measure. You know what? But then if you start to lose weight in your old age, you're going to be saggy wrinkly. I've seen some some elderly dudes who like you know like they maybe were a little pudgy and then they got like real ripped, but that's also weird to look at. You're like, what's going on with you? This is not. I should be seeing some sagging, and it's all taut and it's weird. You know, I, ripped old men I think do HGH. What? Sylvester N- uh, Sylvester Nalone. Sylvester Stallone is Sylvester Naloxone. Is He's addicted ooh. to heroin is notorious for this. Mm. HGH is human growth hormone. Oh, yeah. So it's not, I don't think it's exactly a steroid. I don't really know what the difference is, Mm. but it's a hormone, right? And you're, it's legal, so there's no. But don't you have to like inject it? Probably. I'm not really (sighs) sure. You might be able to take it in pill form, but I guess like old ripped men do this because at a certain point, it's hard to work out with like an aging skeletal structure and stuff. You need Mm. to be like rejuvenated artificially because you can't stay that jacked and if you don't have any mole children you have to just buy it yeah on the street. And, well it, it's not like it gives you the muscle mass but it gives you the ability to retain and oh. keep building yeah, that muscle I feel like mass. you just don't actually like hold on to parts 
Right, but they end up looking like you're talking about, like, really weird, where you should be wrinkly, but and you almost are, but you're too taut. But, like, it's still got that paper look. I heard it once described as, like, an action figure that was put in the microwave for, like, 15 seconds. Oh. You're not, like, all mm-hmm. the way melted. Your skin's not exactly saggy, but it's being tested by the architecture yeah. of your muscle and your yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because gravity is still weighing on it, but it's like, uh, I don't know how to do the, like, if you're... Well, gravity is still weighing on your skin, but nothing else. I feel like Mm, in relatively normal old people, gravity is just weighing on all of you. Your spine is starting to curl over. Mm -hmm. Your skin is sagging off. You have no muscle mass left. I mean, you basically look like a Holocaust survivor at a certain point. An old one, which is good, but, you know... So much Holocaust. Going to the Met. Lots of Holocaustery there. Yeah, do you want to talk about going to oh, the Met? Oh, we should. I mean I mean it's a lovely thing. Go to your go to your giant museums as much as they fired all the people who work there. Um but good to see. Yeah, sure. So background, we went to the Met. What day was that? On Labor Day. Yeah. We went to the Met on Monday. It, it had only been open for what? Less than a week, round a week. Yeah, it opened on like the 28th or 9th or something like that. At that point, you reserve your tickets and they do the whole limited entry business, which, mm-hmm. by the way, heads up. I've been telling other people that asked me about the Met experience this. Just know that the reservation on your ticket doesn't mean that's when you're getting in. Oh, because yeah. Because there's a line outside and then a further line inside. And I only note that because our reservations were for two, but by the time we got in, it was really closer to it three. It was three o'clock, yeah. And with the museum closing hard at five, um, I wished we had known that. Oh, I was done by like 4.30. I could have used more time, you know, because it had been so long since going to a museum that I was like, man, I just want to see everything. Even if it's real quick, I would like to be able to... Take a gander. Take a gander at everything and also be leisurely with what I Mm -hmm. deem appropriate. And with only two hours, I felt really, really rushed at the end. Oh. Because I didn't even 100% realize they were closing until... They started sort of ushering oh, people away around four forty-five. They started scooching. Typical. They start scooching people out of the back areas, mm-hmm. and it, and I did regret it because the Met is so big. And normally, when you're accustomed to going to a place like that all the time, closing time stuff like that, it's not a big deal because I'm usually going there purely for folly. And I'm like, oh, I'll go look at Japan today, and then I'm out. Yeah. Or you know, you'll look at one or two departments and you get your fix and you leave. But yeah. after being deprived of it for so long, I was like, oh shit! Like I was spending a lot of time with stuff that's kind of cliched or that I normally yeah. look over just because I was like, oh, it, real art is, looks different than photographs. Mm-hmm. This is nice. Yeah. And then I would ran out of time. Yeah. So I would keep that in mind if anybody's trying to visit any museum. Really, I'm sure that's true of even yeah. like local and regional museums that are open again. Mm-hmm. Um. Although, to a lesser extent, it's probably more of a dense dense population it's area a problem, thing. but yeah. it, it was a problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we went, and a lot of it was closed, but... They're not done with European painting. Yeah. Still not done. The big section of skylights that need repair. I heard a guard say December of <sighs> that. So. Okay, fine. Um, you know, <sighs> I, in all fine. honesty, whatever. It's like it would it would have been closed anyway, you know? Maybe yeah, not entirely true. or whatever. They probably got a lot more work done over COVID with the museum being like fully shut and oh, yeah. nobody I missed mean, out on anything. At least so. like peeking over the like the things over the like glass doors, you could see paintings on wall, which was not the case in March. Right. So mm-hmm. only thing that was weird, you used to be able to see some parts of it, like down the hallway, but they just were like, nah, it's all we're not done yet. 
Well, I would imagine what they were doing was sort of over the course of weeks and months rotating the sections that were open Mm -hmm. and closed based on the skylights they finished. But as you near the end of the project, they were probably on the last few areas, which were the ones that were open the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was probably the last one to get done. And since they're probably short on guards and stuff, they were like, fuck it, we're not even going to try to just, we'll just keep it. We'll get there eventually. We'll get there. Um, How do you want to approach this? Do you want to talk about the special exhibition first, since that was kind of the only different thing? Oh, the Met Dumpster Fire? Making the Met Dumpster Fire show? Yeah, it's the 150th anniversary of the Met, which I didn't know, by the way. Yeah. I I don't follow these things anymore. It was supposed to be a bigger celebration, but obviously, uh, well, they're celebrating next year, allegedly. Oh, okay. So this is why, like, they're not in a rush to get the European painting section done, because they're like, well, we'll be open to everything next year. This is kind of a side point to the show, but what I feel like, maybe they'll do this next year, what I feel like would have been a more interesting approach to the 150th anniversary of the Met is like, hey guys, like, rehang everything. Oh, I know that's like a huge enterprise, but like, while you're closed for COVID, I guess they can't have necessarily people work or whatever, but a lot of museums did and can't. They had no money. Is the Met technically a city institution? I'm not sure if it's a state thing. I don't know that for sure. It's not. So they they definitely could have, but in any case, yeah. what, uh, this is totally hypothetical in any in, anyway. It would be interesting to just see them rehang the whole the whole damn museum, like just re- retool the whole thing because they keep so many, they keep ninety percent of it the same. Yeah, even when they're rotating, like even if it meant just changing walls or like reshuffling things around a little bit, like hey, how about the Van Gogh room? Just has different stuff in it. Not a yeah. Van Gogh, even. Put the yeah. Van Gogh in four or five different rooms. That's fine. Yeah, space like, it out. Like, let's just see what happens if you shuffle it around a little bit yeah. and pull some stuff out of the archives you don't normally show. Like, I, it, I have I You have could a make wonder. that relevant to different curators that participated in, you know, yeah. in various eras in, the, in this, these collections, because that's kind of what they did in that limited presentation of the show. But why not just do that museum-wide and not do a special exhibition? Do you think that, depending on the object... It can only move a certain time, X number of years, due to insurance reasons. They're like, we don't want it handled. Don't touch it. It costs too much if it breaks. Because, like, the Bougaro has been gone for a while. I'm like, I mm, wonder what that's about. I would bet that that's for restoration if it's been gone for a while. I, they just cleaned it. With No, nah, I don't know. Eh, Maybe yeah. they loaned it. I don't know. Maybe, you never yeah. know. Like, I, I feel like most of the time when paintings or other objects that are typically fixtures in a museum aren't there for an extended period of time it's one of those two things yeah it's conservation or they loaned it somewhere. yeah but i mean like in terms of what you're talking about of shuffling they're like the less we touch it the less we have to worry that might be a consideration but i i doubt it because i think they probably move paintings a lot more than you realize oh yeah let's say there's a leak in a skylight and you just scooch it yeah you know yeah and and actually the Skylight renovation is a perfect example of this. You're moving all of that stuff That's immediately. Yeah. And and when you're talking about museum level objects, they all have crates that you could throw off the World Trade Center That's and true. they would probably survive like Yeah. You know, at a certain level, I bet it's a pretty routine operation. I don't think that there's insurance criteria Related for things. a lot of oh, things. Okay. The only things I could imagine that maybe being the case for are like things like the Mona Lisa, but I bet that has more to do with the potential of them being stolen than it does, yeah. than it does with damage to them. Fair. Yeah. The, the other thing that makes me think that is that art conservation is pretty advanced at this point. 
even if you took an oil painting and a handler dropped it and it sort of cracked and shattered all over the place, they could fix it. Oh, it would come at great. It, it yeah, would come at great expensive. expense, and of course, yeah. nobody wants to do that. But yeah. like, they could do it. There's really. Um, I, I think I was with you actually. Do you remember a time being at the Met and Something we fell from the ceiling? No, a similar incident. We were walking, um, or rather, I was walking in the area in front of where all the impressionist paintings are. There's a lot of Rodans in this one hallway. Yeah, and there was that plaster on the ground. Somebody knocked a Rodan, I think either plaster or marble thing off of its pedestal and it was in it was powder on the floor no the object was still there cuz i remember this cuz i was like whoo what happened um but it looked like something was down from the ceiling oh okay then it's a lot less dramatic than my memory made it uh, no because i looked at it too i was like oh my god did some tourist do this to this object Good i god. thought for sure that it was a shattered sculpture on the floor but no you're probably right especially if they didn't like clear people out of there it would have been yeah. inaccessible they would have you're been right. like shut it down you're right so it was probably just some like like i don't know molded sconce or whatever it, you know on the ceiling near the ceiling yeah i think down. something fell or a piece of drywall for all i know yeah like, oh. But it was a big, I don't know, I remember it being like it near a lot, enough to yeah. a sculpture and being a big thing that I thought it was part of it. But you're, no, you're probably right. They would have shut the whole area down. Like, no, you can't come here, don't walk through, because we were still walking around it. That's true. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was, yeah. it's in the, the hallway on the way to like a uh, special exhibition in modern. Right. Or contemporary, rather. Yeah. Oh, well, I brought that story, I mean, it's not related now, but I brought that up because of conservation things. Yeah. So I was just thinking of like a really extreme example of like well could they fix that and it's like on some level they probably could mm-hmm. yeah, i mean prob- for it, rodans there's casts still so you can just, you could you basically know. just remake it i mean that's you put you, in a special you can order. do that yeah. you can probably do that um but yeah that's the other thing i was going to say is that I, i've heard this from people that worked at auction houses specifically i have no idea how true it is of museums and in fact i think it's probably overblown but I've heard that for really high value things, they just get really um, precise forgeries made and hang those in the galleries. Oh yeah, and keep the originals somewhere ca- permanently else, yeah. archived or in storage somewhere else. Yeah, I don't think that that's. I don't think that that's happening that much. I'm sure there are instances of that. I don't doubt it, but I, I, not I, in museums. No. <sighs> They I just think, th- imagine the expense of that and like so how work. many o- objects would qualify for that treatment if it was really just a matter of money. Yeah. They would have to do it to the whole fucking place. Yeah. And that's not going to happen. No. They're not going to just pick pick ones to do that with no. for no reason. So, yeah, no, 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 no. Like I said, things like the Mona Lisa, things that have, are targeted for theft. Yeah. Or vandalism. Like, uh, you know how yeah. Barnett Newman had been... In people the 20th love century, like, for Barney's, whatever reason, yeah. they uh, Barnett Newman's upset people. Those are also easy enough to make oh, yeah, without anyone yeah. being able to tell that maybe they do that with those. I don't know. Probably not even though. They uh, that one, the blue one, like one of it four, I think, or was the one the blue one that got slashed by that guy in Antwerp. Maybe? Sure, I get all these incidents mixed up, but whatever. Yeah. Like it got restored. Someone as soon as it went up, someone cut it again. And they were like, motherfuckers. All right, we'll fix it again, but we're not putting it up anymore because fuck you guys. Um, but And the, there was another one, a bigger one, that got some kind of stain on it, I think. And they just finished it like three years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the stain thing happens all the time. You'll remember that when we were in grad school, a conservator came and gave a guest oh, lecture. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about people sneezing on, a- on an ad Reinhardt, or rather one person at one point 
sneezed on Ad Reinhardt and that that was the hardest conservation he ever had to do. <sighs> that his surfaces and color were such that like a stain on a painting like that was actually way more difficult than repairing like physical damage mm-hmm. to it. Um, but anyway, what the fuck are we talking Who about? Who sneezes on a fucking... I-, I mean, I could imagine that happening so easily. Jesus I've been Christ. sneezy as shit lately. I-, I don't know if I have allergies or coronavirus or mm. what. Um, a lot of people have been reporting allergies, so I'm hoping it's just that. But yeah. I don't think sneezing is also a symptom of coronavirus. That's no, just no, 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 no. Yeah. You got the sniffles, the itchy sniffles. I'm just, yeah, I'm just nose itchy. Very nose itchy. Mm, doing a lot of cocaine. No, I wish. That <laughs> would be great. I could really use a pick-me-up at, at fucking 9.30 at night while, it's you know, I wait for you to come home. Jesus. I should anyway, start doing coke on this podcast. You should it, not. It, you I don't. I I'm do all, not have the energy I'm for that. I'm already incoherent and rambly enough. Oh, God. And, uh, you know, conspiratorial enough that you'd, you'd really get some juice out of me at that Reader, point. Reader, write in. Say no. Say no to drugs. I could do I could do an entire solo episode on my fantasy about living in Hokkaido. Oh Jesus fucking Christ. We're we're veering, watching the snowfall. We're veering from the 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 topic at hand I'm here. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So, um wow, that actually worked sick. Um no, I mean, it so you felt cut for time. I felt it was fine, but I was also starving because I had not eaten in approximately 24 hours and was ready to die. Oh, yeah, we should talk about that. You, you yeah. well, as, we, as we covered for 27 we'll minutes at the beginning of this podcast, you Papa really don't like to, to be hungry. Yeah, no, I don't like to be hungry. But I also was stuck in the museum. Uh, once we got in line, I went, fuck, I don't have my actual glasses because I just was like, I'll leave my bag. I don't want to like have them go in it. Blah, blah, you know, I don't want to carry it. You know what's in there? Regular glasses, wearing those pr- sweet, sweet prescription sunnies. And then I go, huh, I'm going to go look at stuff, and it's going to be a little green. All right. But then when you, it's very hard to lean in. Actually, it was fine. Um, no guards were like, step away. Because I was leaning in real close, put my baseball hat on backwards, and was like, up on shit. And it was the closest I've been to things, because I could just lean over the stanchions. Oh, yeah, sure. And, you know when you don't have good vision looking at a Jackson Pollock is like, Ooh, a magic eye. Oh yeah. Not to mention the guards were probably taking pity on you because you literally look like Mr. Magoo right now, especially when you're not wearing your glasses. Maybe they thought you were blind. They saw a man with sunglasses walking, with no th- stick? walking through a museum aimlessly. You were probably so starving that you were swerving all over the place. And they were like, oh, this poor blind man, he just wants to smell the paintings. We'll let him get close. Anyway, um, no, people did look at me like, what are you doing with sunglasses Yeah, you on? must and have I was like, pretty crazy. Yeah, th- I feel like they were like, are you like famous? Or are you like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to avoid the police? I'm like... No, I'm just dumb. Oh, God. God. Could, could you imagine if five people behind us in line, there was some hipster with sunglasses on inside, and then we saw him later in the museum walking around with them still on? You know what people must have thought of you? Douche I would bag. be merciless to a person. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, no. I Yeah, it was bad. But then I would do the thing of, like, take them off and then squint and be like, I don't know. It's hard to see. So did did that affect your experience of anything, or did you work it out by few minutes in i mean so here's the thing here's what actually does matter you know colors matter um and this is going to sound very dumb it's incredibly stupid but let me throw this out there there are things like when you get into like abstract painting right you're just like and this happened with the stanley whitney too that was up so congrats to stanley got a you know he's up right now um 
when you go in and you're like, oh yeah, it's about like things that are about color and shape, which is abstraction, right? When it's a little fuzzy, you're like, ooh, it's doing lots of stuff. But the more shape it gets, you're like, ooh, not so much. Like color, if your thing is color, it's great when you don't have to worry about shapes. When you got to worry about shapes, oh shit. Uh, would it be fair to say you're actually just talking about edges? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, but containers, like you, the containers sure, of the things. In, sure. In a way that like a Kelly, you're just like, well, that's a color. Well, yeah. Something like a Stanley Whitney is a really good example because all he's really doing with the forms in the painting, the shapes, is weighting colors differently. Yeah. Based on what they already weigh visually. Yeah. So it's that sort of double double balancing act of like making things pleasing on these two different criteria of weight right mm-hmm. and so without your glasses on like everything blending together it's all like ooh, yeah you color. can actually see the relationships probably a little ironically a little bit more clearly mm-hmm. whereas the edges kind of get in the way of this effect or even the brush strokes might do that like the brush strokes i yeah. commented to you about the stanley painting and you know this is no shade no lemonade stanley's great or whatever but i find his paintings like kind of unsatisfying on the surface mm-hmm. of them i don't think he does himself a lot of favors with his surfaces um, not that they need to be one way or another. I don't Depends really, I don't really know how to yeah. diagnose this, but to me, they look just kind of cheap and thin. Um, I know they're not on store-bought canvas, but they almost have that appearance to me. That's that triple prime, that very expensive. Triple and even prime. though he uses oil, it still manages to come off looking like acrylic somehow, where it has that like weird plasticky feel, and it doesn't have the richness that like a waxier oil paint has. I think that's a good thing, though. It, it it's probably fine a lot of this is probably just personal preference but i i like his paintings from a distance and this relates to your glasses thing and then i get up on them and i'm like oh there's really no payoff here yeah the well hmm. you know for me when i i always think about these things in terms of like reproduction versus not i don't think stanley's paintings in life really do much oh i mean they they do an interesting thing of being photographically more luscious because uh, yeah you're right the well i want to take that back really quick Uh. because they are about color and that's not reproducible yeah so i want to be fair in that respect but i mean uh, in every other formal way they could be inkjet prints but also if you're looking at them on a phone like they're kind of small so they are kind of in a distance to a certain extent yeah you know um but like it when you're looking at those you know uh autumn rhythm you're like ooh, wow magic eye you know was about to like cry in front of a rothko because i was like oh i feel it real deeply because i truly can't see the edges it's just color like pulsing at me and i was like am i gonna weep right now i don't know i might actually have feelings and i don't know how I, you know dude i can't believe you went there i i never would have said this if you hadn't brought it up first but that happened to me in the same room but with the pollocks oh well um maybe for slightly different reasons or whatever but to address rothko for a second i know what you mean my favorite thing to do with the rothkos is similar thing to what i do with pollock paintings where if you just look at them without focusing on any particular area the colors really start to hover and change Mm -hmm. some of those paintings go completely monochrome sometimes one form will really just come out and the other two will completely recede they're very interesting like they're like breathing bodies like it's like it's that little you know intake outtake like hover and you're like <gasps> and I, maybe this is the thing because this happened at lacma but i was also like very tired because i was flying i was up since like four in the morning and then at two in the afternoon when you're dead tired like those fuckers hit real hard and you're like oh, i'm feeling things but like and again maybe like being hungry and a little blind i was like <gasps> oh and it was also like i don't know did you have the feeling that like i don't know i had this with may picture the clee clay um 
you know, like there are certain paintings that I'm like, I treat them like, oh, hello, old friend. Yeah, sure. Like, because he's, you know, looked at him for the better part of a decade. Um, so like to see them again, you're like, oh, you're still here. Oh, and you're like, I don't know. I had very strange like joy waves. And then, you know, seeing the, I don't know, the Rothko made, I was like, oh yeah, seeing stuff makes me feel things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, well, you know, I I joked to you when you were mentioning how hungry you were on the way to the Met yeah. that it's good to go to the museum hungry. And that was only kind of a joke because I learned this from David Reed. when yeah. He commented in an interview I read a long time ago that he would intentionally go to the museum um, when he was hungry or tired because he felt like the experience of the objects was better. He had a more specific take on it. I don't remember what it was, mm. but it fits this conversation. And at a certain point, not always, but I would kind of do that um, and have done that over the years. And I do think it helps. Now, it relates to our current situation. And like even your example of getting off a plane in L.A. and you're like, you know, you're tired from travel. Yeah. That happens to people. And then you go immediately to a museum because you're a crazy person that doesn't go put your bags down. You take them to a museum, well, I had check them and go, go see things. Listen, I had... There was a check-in time, and it wasn't there yet, so I timed kill. Yep, but in any case, that's another exaggerated experience where you're just in a weird place, and yeah. you haven't had like normal contact with anything in a long time. So to see an object or series of objects that is literally completely unique, mm-hmm. um, and especially going to the Met, a museum that you're familiar with, where not only are the objects completely uh unique things but you've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with them in the past so you have other feelings about them that come in and yeah um yeah so to answer your question yes i was i was really experiencing this hard i I spent a lot of time with the van goghs and the pollocks Mm. because something about the high intensity of both those paintings like van gogh and pollock are just really intense painters in their way Mm. very different but um yeah, and I had a near cry experience with with Autumn Rhythm when I first saw it because I always look at that painting. Yeah. It's one of my favorite paintings in the world, and to see it again and not not go into that room with the intention of having an experience of mm-hmm. it—that's important. Yeah, because I think if you go in with any expectation at all, you're you know you're going to be let down. Yeah, expectations deflate everything. But I oh, kind of yeah. forgot what room it was in. I don't know. And I well, saw, it got rehung. So and I yeah. saw it, and I looked at it for a minute or two, and I was just like, "Holy shit, this rules!" Mm-hmm. And it was ju- it was just so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and it was a flood of other emotions too. Of like, God, I f- forgot what it was like to like art. Hmm. Um, that's not only coronavirus related in my case. Yeah. But it definitely exacerbates it. Yeah. Where you're like, fuck this whole thing. I don't know what to make. Why the fuck would anybody make anything really right now? Mm-hmm. And then you just go see something good. And I think abstraction is an interesting case, too, because it's not political. You can't judge it in that way. It has nothing to do even with the time it was made in. Mm-hmm. And I know that's like a crazy statement, but at least that's what it seemed to be striving for. And if you're willing to let yourself look at it that way, it works. Yeah. Well, like before I got there, I was or got to that room. I was down in, or was it after? No, after that, I then was down in like the carpet modernism, you know? Yeah, sure. White carpet, dirty white carpet modernism. The area under the abstract expression is stuff where you have the like 1910s to the 1930s. Let's yeah, say. sure. Something like that. Yeah, Solani shit. Yeah. Right. And then there's that, like, you know, there's that Brock uh, pool table that I just love. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really formative bug. painting for you. Eh, 
I like it though. It, like it's no, one of those things I th- I've thought about it a lot, but I also like it. All I mean by that is when I see that painting, I think of you because mm. you've talked about it before. It's yeah. not a painting I particularly lo- yeah. care about, but that's like a will painting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So like you know I was like oh you're here too and also very interesting to see blurry because like there's so, uh, it's it retains in the in, in that kind of reverse of. A Stanley that crystallizes in image, but also the parts are so distinct that even like kind of blurry and you're up on them. You're like, oh, these are all they aggregate in a way that a lot of other things don't. Uh huh. So I was like, hmm, still works. Interesting. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of like riding a high for a while and then seeing the uh, the Pizarro's, the ladies in the field. What I learned, what I realized when it's blurry you know um what are the lossy images when things are reposted yeah when you can't see all the little dots and you're just kind of getting the color field it does that same kind of thing of being a lossy like degraded jpeg because there's a lot more color in it than you see because all the shape because it's so small it just kind of becomes shapely sure yeah yeah, yeah. form e but you can't do that and then you're just getting these like really glittery color washes and i was like how the fuck did i never notice this yeah i mean it's sort of embarrassing to talk about impressionism on this like i don't know very basic level but i would imagine that those paintings would be perfect for being glassesless because that's what they do like people i think even even other artists make the mistake of thinking about the impressionists as if they were like trying to i don't know like do something interesting theoretically with color Mm. but they're really uh painters of light to invoke mr kincaid but really that's what they are i mean i think that's what you're describing like when you're looking at an impressionist painting it's not like um it's not an impression of the things in the painting it's an impression of the way that light falls upon those things it's really more about fields Mm. and less about forms and so that that glittery quality of hundreds of colors like m- making something sort of sparkle. I mean, mm-hmm. that's light. They're not they're not dealing at all with the picture of something. Yeah. It's hard to understand because impressionism has become kitsch, you know. Mm-hmm. Monets are yeah. the things that hang in people's bathrooms and people like them because they're oh, they're of a nice Japanese bridge or oh, it's yeah. a nice vase of flowers, but um they just didn't have like the historical position to get to abstraction yet and make a Jules Olitsky, basically, mm. or a Rothko. Yeah. Th- those are like almost just complete reductive, but extrapolations of impressionism. Yeah, ish. Yeah. yeah, but I don't know. I, mm, you get into like the Fovey rooms where it's all just bright shit. Those are easy to like. Those are just too easy. Maybe a little like well, blind, or, but can I offer this? Like earlier when I was talking about the intensity of Van Gogh, I think yeah. when people get into fauvism and expressionism, they tend to think like, "Oh, that comes from Van Gogh. Like he sort of started that." Oh no! But that's really not his thing at all. Like no. the arbitrary quality of fauvists and expressionists, I've never really jived with. It's intensity for intensity's sake. Yeah, it's not really in service of something. And yeah, I'm not the sure color's not natural. Well, and it doesn't have to be. Van Gogh's color is not natural either, but it is in service of like an emotional or psychological state. And I think that the it is. And I think that the expressionists and stuff were trying to do that, too. But they were so emo about it that it was like more like looking at a puddle of mud album cover and less like um, one thing. The Bernard's the Bernard room where it's like color and you're like, whoa, slow your jets, buddy. 
Well, I would argue that Bernard has a similar state of like emotional intensity and like a, a way of treatment. He painted all those paintings from memory. Like there's something really different about him. He wasn't trying to make a statement with those paintings. But they're very poppy. Pop color. Well, we say that now because that's what we associate bright color with. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, fair. Um, like you wouldn't say that about a Rothko, even though a lot of the time the colors in a Rothko are similarly in, like of the same palette. Well, they were. Yeah, but you wouldn't call a Rothko pop, is my point. That's sort of an anachronism. Mm, yeah. I don't think you can really say that about Bernard either. Hmm. I don't know. They're they're very candy colored. Can we say candy colored? Sure. I think they're... It, I'm just thinking there's like some oranges and like magentas in a way that it's like, ooh, we're getting into synthetic color. Yeah, like sure. Like mineral colors that are being fucked with um, in a way that like previously would be a little more natural, natural to be colors. Yeah, I mean, this was the big deal with the Impressionists, I think, to start and then post-Impressionism and everything that followed that in general was that just tracked like paint and dye technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a Van Gogh in the Met that is now a white vase of flowers that was mm-hmm. once, like, a neon pink oh, vase yeah, yeah. of flowers yeah. that faded over time because they were the first to start to deal yeah. with synthetic and fugitive, like, pigments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, it's a large part of the reason they could, they could like, develop a psychology around painting that was different because they just had a, a range, that w- a spectral range yeah. that was suddenly wider than it had ever yes. been before. Yes. No, that was, yeah. Um. Was there a, was there a point that you were trying to make though? I didn't mean. About I, what? I feel like I w- took us on a digression accidentally about intensity about of one. color and stuff. You were talking about moving into like the Fovis Fovis well, yeah, and expressionist like, stuff. I don't know, like because we're talking about like because I brought up like the the stupidity of like you know colors and shapes are hard, um, but like that's the kind of thing I look at that room and I'm like too loud, too much trying to do color in the shit. No, not doing it for me. And that just is like a weird, like confirmation bias that I have that I look at those and I go, nah, not for me, not hitting me. Even though they're, they're the most crystalline things. Cause they're so fucking bright. Like the shape, actually the color form helps with the shape making for a, you know, fairly blind person. Um, but I still was like, Oh no, no mess. No, no, thank you. Not for me. And I know, like, for, for some circles, it's like, oh, no, we, do, we don't speak ill of the B, the big B. And I'm like, well, not for me. Still going to say not for me. Well, I think generally when it comes to visiting museums, the experience that I have every time is basically it, it, there are the old friends, and then outside of that, you never really know what's going to happen or what's going to attract you. I get mm. attracted to different painters at different times or mm. whatever. Um so I don't know. There could be a time in the future when you come across that room without your glasses on and like really learn to appreciate it. But it just depends a lot on like what state you're in. They never did though, and this is why like going in with like fresh eyes because like oh what's what's where I'm like mm, you, you guys interesting to see you, but you never do it for me. I don't know why. Well, I don't know. You might want to think hmm. about that. Like I don't know. I, I think it can also be an interesting exercise in viewing to like go and look really hard at things you don't particularly like. Yeah, I do try to do that kind of a lot and usually it's fruitless to be honest because yeah. I, I think people you know especially at our age or any any age above really like your mid-20s you're kind of solidified at that point in what you what lane you're in 
Yeah. And subsequently, like, what you find attractive. Like, you know, we're not art critics or art historians. I don't think we have any responsibility to be, like, particularly Catholic about yeah. letting things in. I'm fine with being pretty judgmental about shit like that. But I do think it's interesting to, like, try and look at it really hard. I mean, um, you read the book. I never did. But T.J. Clark's Sight of Death. Yeah. I think about it even though I never read it because mm-hmm. the premise of the book, for those that don't know, is that he went and looked at the same painting for, what, 100 days in a row? It was it w- something like that. It was the full, like, Poussin suite. So it was like the the guy in the river, and then like after he gets bit by the snake. Well, let's not get bogged down in the details. He, but he, way, the yeah, premise you know. of it was is that he went and looked at a, yeah, a painting or a similar set of like painting diary, every yeah. day for a set amount of time, which was a long time. And that premise has always been very interesting to me because some of the stuff you described from the book and some of the excerpts that I've heard and read from it, like he starts to get into real minutia. Like, you know, how the tiles on a roof are painted or something like that. Or, like, how many figures are a mile away in the background of this landscape, like, bathing in a thing and what that might mean. And it brings up things for him. And so I always think, like, the the more you're willing to look at something for longer, whether you care about it or not, like, the more you'll probably discover. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I have similar things. Like, I always wished I could get into, like, Mesoamerican art. And every time I try, I just can't do it. Where's that? In the uh, I, like I think I don't Central visit it. Central and South American stuff. Oh, they had a good there was a good Art of Native America show. Did you see that on the American Wing? Uh it's no, not really Mesoamerican. No, I, I didn't I didn't see that, but my 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 point is just that I think sometimes it can be a taste thing when you're talking about modern art mm-hmm. or things that you're nearer to in time. I think yeah. that's usually more judgmental, but also like I brought up the Mesoamerican example cuz I am so distant from that culturally mm. and historically just in time Yeah, that why would it be attractive to me? I would have to work really hard to begin to understand it because you don't have any of the subtle cues yeah. that make like Western painting interesting to me because I know the whole trajectory from Greece to the present day and I can see all the illusions mm-hmm. being made I can see all of the references, you know. Yeah. Um, I can see all the formal development in, in a linear way. That's a very Western way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, so why would something from uh, 1500 in mm-hmm. Brazil, yeah, you know, be interesting to me? There's no reason it should be. Well, That's not to say it can't be or anything, and I've tried, but uh, it's just really impenetrable because the language isn't there. Maybe. Um but I also wonder, like, I don't think the Met does you any favors because everything is in, like, single pedestal cases, like they're trophies. And you're like, oh, I think these were, like, ritualistically used. So I'm like, this is a little weird just because it's gold and it's in its own thing. And you're like, you're not helping me understand the story. No, I mean, yeah, don't get me started. I think there's a lot of problems with especially older museums, but just, like, exhibition design is abysmal like if there's anybody out there working in that field or people that think about that at all like think harder guys because for whatever reason it always feels to me in a place like the met like everything except for western art you basically treat like it's a natural history museum why is that yeah there are like nothing there are practical reasons for that um because in a certain sense they are historical objects more than their art like i don't know i don't know if our definition of art necessarily can be thrown back to like a relief that was in a temple Mm -hmm. like you know i guess but 
we just look at things differently now. I don't know. It's it's hard, and then you're and then you're inheriting like architecture and exhibition design from previous generations oh, yeah. I mean, that have different attitudes towards things. Mm-hmm. It just gets all mucked up. I'm not really sure what to make of it, but I agree with you that they don't do you any favors when it comes to most of that art but, of other cultures. But when you go to like the art of the Asias and you see that like rehung uh, suite of like the tea ceremony table all the way to the left, and most of the case is empty. It's fucking, you are like, oh, that's that's a thing. Like, that tells you a story. And even the way that they <coughs> did, like, they would have a fan and then, like, a little uh, a parchment roller and then a bowl. Like, two objects thing behind. I'm like, oh, this is a story now. And I wonder if it has to do with, like, it has this kind of, like, window set dressing thing. So, I'm like, I'm already, like, tell me the story. I got the story here. Well, I th- you know what I think it is is that... um First of all, like it w- especially when you're talking about Japanese stuff, a lot of that stuff is more recent. Um, it's from the last 500 years. Not that there's not Mesoamerican and other stuff that's recent too, yeah. um, but modern, modern Western art took so much from Japan yeah. at a certain point that the aesthetic gap is not as large. Mm-hmm. And then just by sheer coincidence. I think the Japanese treatment of art and the presentation of it, like things being on screens or scrolls, furniture being a prized thing, um, you know, woodblock printing being a big part of this, it wasn't as different in yeah. form as something like uh, ritual objects from like Sierra Leone. Oh, that yeah. just had yeah. a different role in society, a completely different. Um, way of being thought about that doesn't translate to museum yeah where i think japanese stuff in particular because we uh exchanged ideas with it at a certain point and because it shared similarity with our forms of art in the first place by coincidence Hmm. sort of works yeah i mean i you could say the same thing for chinese a lot of asian art yeah i mean i have this i'm always like kind of astounded that like think about every period dressed room at the Met, right? You have these recreated rooms, parts that were taken from, like, you know, fully, like, reconstructed down to, like, banisters, right? We haven't done that in any museum that I know of with high modern at all. Right. I I think, what, Princeton reinstalled that one room, the Schwitter's room? Yeah, yeah. That was eight years ago, seven years ago. Um which is like, whoa, that's wild. Um, but, like, I want to see, like, a room with, like, some Breuer chairs, a fucking Stella behind it. Like, you know that you see in, like, old architecture or, you know, design, uh, home design books? Yeah. From, like, the 80s where it's, like, crazy chrome shit and then, like, someone's David Sally or something like that? Yeah, you know, I think you could make the argument that people... I think there's two things. I think one that the white cube aesthetic is just il- like a slightly reduced version of all of that anyway. Yeah, but I, like I, I do think that like m- modernism as you know we typically understand it from an American perspective or a western perspective museum presentation is the version of that. You could 
argue that they should like reconstruct like a Frank Lloyd Wright house and like put a Pollock in there or something above the couch? I don't know. No. But they do sort of do this already. Like in the American Wing, they have this. Yeah, but there's no stuff on the walls. But yeah, you, that also wouldn't be period appropriate. But what I'm saying is like when you think about rich people's apartments on the Upper East Side who would have art of that time, having a lower ceiling and really getting the scale of like what say like Vir Herokas was like in a home versus it's always been at MoMA you know like having that compressed space eh, with a couch or you know, something like I don't know I, I don't know that 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 to me could be an interesting like novelty and I'm sure it has been done um, I mean think about like the private collections like the glass house in Connecticut and stuff. That, I was gonna say like that's do, what they do there the, yeah the wealthy collectors from the 20th century are recent enough in time that they do this themselves basically a- and also like institutions exist for a reason like that kind of separation of something being like art in a museum versus what it's like in a domestic space Mm. some artists prefer a domestic space or whatever and some artists prefer an institutional space i don't know Mm. i don't really have an opinion on it but like it it would not add to the experience of autumn rhythm for me if i saw it in a period appropriate room like recreated at peggy no way no really no huh because i don't think it's about that but again, it goes back to the question of like, what's the story being told? That would be an interesting way to tell that story versus the way that we know it. I is. think your idea is a good one. I think it's probably more applicable to the um, other cultural examples that we were using. When you first started talking, I thought you were going to say in the same sense that they reconstruct like a Chinese courtyard yeah. or do a Japanese interior. I've never seen a museum do that with Africa. I've never seen them do that with South America. That's true. I'm sure there's museums that specialize in those type of collections that have done this and and maybe do this to a greater extent. But like you said about the Mesoamerican stuff, it's a bunch of little gold trinkets in individual vitrines on podiums. You have no sense of how this interacted with their society. Like, what about a reconstruction of, you know, what did a Mayan city look like? Yeah. In in fact, it's a Mel Gibson movie that gives me a better idea of this than any museum ever has. Well, I don't know about that, but... I mean, No, it's really true. I mean, I say what you say. I, I know you have your yeah. opinions, but say what you want. Like, Apocalypto is pretty good in this way. And if you're interested in that culture, it's a good place to start. Well, do you remember the jewelry show from a couple, like, a year and a half ago? Two years ago, maybe? B- barely, yeah. Do you remember the way the vitrines were built that way? Um, th- didn't they like sort of build them into the wall and it was sort of a darkened room or am I thinking that was of part else? of it? Yeah. yeah. But the main room had tiers of, uh, cubes. So in the first thing, it'd be like shoe ornament and then the next one would be slightly taller and it'd be like a waist thing. And then you would get up to the head. So as you like saw the arc of them, you'd, you'd fill the body. Right. Right. Great. Amazing. Tells yeah. a story, and it tells you uh, across the way, like what are pe- you know you can look, you can you know do the accesses and see like oh what did different cultures do like, and that's great. Like and it, that's the kind of thing where you're like, I get a narrative for jewelry, which I don't really give a fuck about, but I get a sense of personhood because it's my scale as well. Sure, it's not just like well we got a gold headdress and it's chest high and you should look at how shiny it is. Look at how gold it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Met does a good job of this when they do the fashion shows sometimes. Not always, but yeah. the, but the, but they tend to, you know, for whatever reason, when it comes to jewelry and fashion, they spend a little bit more time thinking about how to narrativize this. Yeah. Probably because in, in isolation, those, like, consumer objects are not that interesting. 
Like they're because they're meant well, to be out in the world. So yeah. in an institutional context, they're kind of empty of their real meaning. Like, well, it's like if you saw the Bowie show and you're just like, right. what are we looking at these costumes that I can't see? Because they're, they're meant to be on like, stage with music, yeah. so they don't really make sense isolated. No, um, like in that show, the making the Met show, they had the Mondrian dress. Yeah, that was a, that was amazing. I liked seeing that. Contextless. Totally. The story made no fucking sense. They're like, it was mod. I'm like, what? Where? Why? How? Right. No. The the only thing you have to contextualize it is a Rauschenberg poster for the Met, and I'm like, you couldn't even pull a Rauschenberg instead of your poster. Well, d- to Duh be fuck. to be fair, it was a show about the Met. Like, it wasn't really a show about the objects in it. It was the objects in the show informing the history of the institution. Yeah, but they put Madame X on a shitty wall. I, I understand, man, but th- this you is know. actually a good circle back because the special exhibition that was there that we started out talking about and never really got to um, was their limited presence. You can skip it. You, you probably can, but I, I want to say this about it, that I always appreciate an exhibition that sort of mixes up different cultures and times and puts them next to each other. Uh, in in my ideal world, like museums, um, architecture and exhibition design wouldn't actually have to change that much if they would just take more risks in terms of categorization. Like, that's mm-hmm. my main problem. I don't think, you know... This is, I'm going to sound like such an idiot because it's cliche, but in an internet age where I can Google anything I want in any order, it's a, I chafe against museums and how um, orderly they are. This is why that Amy Selman thing at MoMA is like the shit. It was fine, except that doing it all in one room and jamming it together doesn't give anything any room to breathe. That, that's not really Amy Selman's fault or MoMA's fault. That's just the limitation of that oh, exhibition. I kind of love that. Um, for listeners that didn't see that, you can look it up. It's, it's hard to describe. Up. It's still up? Nothing close. My God, I didn't realize it was right before COVID. Yeah. But anyway. But yeah, I like it when things are kind of out of order and you can gain a new appreciation for different things by compare and contrast. Because I think that's m- how my mind work I, works. I think that's how a lot of people now just natively work because yeah. that's what you interface with. That's how it goes. You don't look, you know, when I'm going on Wikipedia jags, it doesn't go from uh, Manet to Monet to uh, Degas to Van Gogh. You're to not Gauguin. on the timeline. You're not slider. in a fucking yeah. timeline. It doesn't make any sense to do that. That's not how any of that shit works. No. And, you know, decontextualizing the art and telling a different story with it on its aesthetic level alone yeah. can help everything. You're, you're, I mean, yeah. there, there is some data loss there. I think it would maybe upset people that would be like, oh, it's really colonial to take it out of its, you know, native context. Or, you know, it might upset somebody like you that's what, like, well, modernist painting should be with modernist painting or whatever. I don't mean to caricature you. I'm just Good God. No, using you for example. But, like, you know, you're going to lose some stuff. Like, there should be that painting of Zola uh-huh. in Asia. Not, I mean, granted, it's in France. But, like, you know, that would be great, like, in context with other things. With all the like, you know, Oriental, yeah, to see like a Orientalist, according to their terms, style of painting, in things that they were trying to rip off, in terms of motifs and decoration. Yeah, sure. So then you're just like, ooh, what did the white man kind of fuck up? And you're like, oh, well, a little bit, but you get a sense of the world that they were viewing at the time too. You get a, a deeper, Im- immersive understanding versus a, st- again, what's the storytelling? I'd rather feel it than be told it. I don't, I don't, I'm not reading a label. Don't tell me. I'd rather see it and go, oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
I mean, you know, I used to be anti-label reading too, just because I felt like I wanted to experience the art only. And by and large, I still do this, but I've learned that when you're in special exhibitions, it's always good to read the label because they are trying to tell a story and that is part of it. Mm. Like in talking to you about the 150 years at the Met show, yeah. not that I think that that was a good show, but I do think you missed a lot of stuff by not engaging with their story as on their terms. There was a lot of people. You don't there. have to like yeah. it. It's sort of like going to a schlocky movie and knowing that it's going to be schlocky, yeah. but you're just appreciating it on that level. You know, so I feel like you have to give it its due. It's not. I'm, I'm not saying be one of these old people that walks around with a magnifying glass and reads every single date. That kind of was me though, because I couldn't really see. Yeah, but but um, I do think, but I do think it helps in situations like that to read the labels. Because I mentioned this to you afterwards, but uh, there was a really interesting piece to me in the show that was a pretty nondescript sculpture of like the Virgin Mary and children. Um, I shouldn't say nondescript. It caught my eye because it was a weird thing. It was like marble, but it was also gilded. I didn't Mm. understand. I didn't know who the artist was. I didn't understand what this thing was doing here. Mm -hmm. And then I read the label, and it turns out that the Met bought it from um, a guy that got it from Hermann Goering, famed uh, uh, German Air Force general from World War II. Mm. Um, Yeah. So sometimes, uh, sometimes the story on the label is what they're trying to tell you that th- this object like, might have. We caught ended your up eye. with this, and we don't know. Well, and it's you know, there's a lot you could say, but we quote ended up with it. No, you knew you knew you were buying a like Nazi stolen art, but okay. But hey, mm, maybe yeah. this object is charged in some way, and it caught my eye because that kind of stuff is retained, and then you can learn about it. Mm, you yeah. know. Mm. Um. We can wrap up here in a second, but I wanted to talk oh, about the Richters. I was going to say, you want to talk about the Richters or not? Yeah, so the the Met Breuer was hosting a Richter show that, because of COVID, was only open for eight days. Yeah, anybody see that? No. And is now completely canceled. They didn't delay it. And I learned why recently. I think you already know, because I already knew too, but I forgot. The Breuer's being transferred to the Frick. I told you that. I know you told me that, but there's no opportunity to yeah. do the Richter show again. Well, I, here, I kept wondering why it was completely canceled. Here's the thing. They could have kept it up. Could have. But because of code, they were like, well, we can sell them the lease early and then we don't have to pay for it. And all we got to do is ship the shit out. And then th- that's a cost we don't have to eat. That's part of it, I'm sure. So, I, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. I bet a lot of that work was on loan and things like this. Oh, yeah, but I had forgotten. My point was I'd forgotten about the entire transfer to the Frick thing that mm-hmm. just now the Met Breuer belongs to them. But anyway. So in lieu of this... Richter show they moved one series of paintings to the very back of the Met um, in a place that it does not belong well you know Quite frankly when I say the very back of the Met it really is like if you walk in the main entrance and it's you in the just layman wing. keep on walking to the layman wing um, you'll find these Richter paintings in this little rotunda and they're just back there as you know uh, we're sorry this is all we can do this is what we could keep for a time um, yeah they're a series called the Birkenau paintings, and it was the, f- the first time they've ever been shown in the United States. Huh. So, you know, you might never see them again. Um, they're pretty standard, in my opinion, like Richter squeegee paintings, mostly black and white, a little bit of green, a little bit of pink. But they are they are a series based on four photographs called the Sonder Commander photos. Sonder mm-hmm. Commando, excuse me. Where... Uh, 
I'm probably fucking up some of these details, but I believe it was a Polish resistance fighter snuck himself into Birkenau concentration camp during the war with a camera and took the only pictures that we have of the mass murder taking place in the camps. Like, the Nazis didn't document any of it. So it was this guy attempting to take photos of um, other prisoners burning bodies and things like this. Now, they're not... Two of the photos are pretty graphic in the background, and you can see this. The other two are basically just these really ghostly images of trees because this guy was taking these pictures without being able to look through the lens. I mean, he's being watched by guards. I, I, I should say, I told you this, but I weirdly coincidentally discovered the Sonder Commander photos on my own a few weeks ago, hmm. um, just on an internet tangent. I didn't know about them. And so in reading about this, that the story was that like the guards were watching people all the time, so even this guy getting caught with a camera meant he was going to get killed. Yeah. So he and a bunch of other prisoners went way out of their way to like have people at different posts and stuff to make sure he wasn't going to get caught doing this, but mm-hmm. also what it meant is that he couldn't frame the pictures. Yeah. He was actually standing inside... Um, not quite the gas chamber, but like the foyer to the gas chamber mm. to be out of sight of people. So in a lot of these photos, you see a black rectangle around all of them mm. that looks like it might just be an artifact of the negatives or something, but it's not. He's actually shooting them from inside um, a building that was a death chamber. Air. So anyway, they're really consequential pictures because they're the only pictures that we have of mm-hmm. of the Holocaust actually happening. And they're really ghostly because they're blurry, they're out of focus, they're shot from the hip, literally. I just saw the trees, and I was like, pictures of trees? Okay. Yeah, but so they're they're charged things. The other interesting thing to note is that uh, the prints, uh, when Will says he saw them, it's because these photos were actually printed and shown alongside these paintings for context. Um, Richter got permission from the State Museum at Birkenau to do this. Um, there is no such thing as prints of these. They exist only as negatives that that museum holds. Hmm. So Richter getting permission to make them into silver gelatins and show them with his paintings is kind of a big deal because outside of scans that you can find on the internet, they don't exist anywhere else. Yeah. So it, it's an it was an interesting like little thing to discover in the back of the museum as a morbid kind of treat. Well, think about it also in terms of it's also above the um, all of the Dutch masterpiece paintings. Yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, don't uh, think you can attribute too much of stretching, t- uh, intention but, to that. But what was the red glass? What, what, that was just part of it. On the title, on the title wall, he has there's like a red smoked glass piece. Oh, I vaguely remember that. I'm not really sure. That might that might just have something to do with explaining the technique. I didn't read the entire uh, big wall text there, but he does those squeegee paintings with pieces of plexi that are big. And I'm wondering if that's what it was about. Maybe no. it was about something else. I think else. it was like the, no gr- you know, the gray mirror tippy things. Yeah. I think it was like one of those, but red. And I was like, oh, I've never seen a red one. And I wonder if like because of photographic negative that is so charged, like a, a blood so like a blood red ne- negative. Oh, sure. Yeah. That seems on brand for him. Yeah. I'm sure it has something to do with something. I don't know. Hmm. Well. Yeah. I don't know. that. Like the, the Richter paintings were interesting to see. I, I, I'm mostly... I'm more obviously more fascinated by the photos. I just explained all that stuff. Um, I guess the deal with the paintings is that he was originally trying to paint them photorealistically at that scale yeah. and just kind of couldn't pull it off and so decided to squeegee them anyway. Isn't that how all the squeegees sometimes work? Originally I think they started? probably started that way. I'm pretty sure now he, Until doesn't, it was a money printing he doesn't do that anymore, yeah. but 
but yeah, I think they used to start as images. You know, and you can't really tell that when you look at the paintings. Like, oh no, not at all. Again, the paintings paired with the photos are interesting. Yeah, the paintings on their own are pretty boilerplate. They're just they just look like Richter's. If you saw them on their own, you wouldn't attribute any particular significance to them. I don't think you need. Uh, that's the, the kind of thing where you do need the story to have like they're very tall. They're very they're massive things, and they are just like manifestations of static as painting. Yeah. So like big walls of static. Uh, with that you're like mm, well it's that kind of thing where it attempts to do like a feeling thing like a rothko but like menace a menacing feeling it doesn't actually work well i i also think that richter's whole deal in a certain sense is um emptying out <laughs> emptying out or deflating that emotional sensitivity mm. through the re- the removal like through the uh squeegeeing out of the images uh, I read in that show that he reproduced those as digital prints that now hang in like some German government building somewhere. Hmm. So I think like the alienation of the German subject, like the inability to grapple with the immensity and intensity of the Holocaust, yeah. is like what all German painters of that era sort of deal with. Yeah. And Richter's, I th- I think, take on it is that like mechanical reproduction makes it harder and harder to understand the gravity of that situation so the interaction between these photos that actually end up being more charged than these paintings might kind of be the point you know so it's an ironic gesture towards something like a rothko where it gives you an earnest emotional investment in its color space and in its scale yeah and i think that richter's point is that the paintings can never tell you how egregious this actually was yeah i think it's the impossibility of feeling. Right. Where, whereas, you know, to use another German rather than an American, like where, what Anselm Kiefer kind of does is more earnest in the sense that this is sort of an illustration of the toxicity of this moment. You know, mm. using Paul Ceylon's poetry and doing things in lead. And, yeah, but, you know, it's, mm. you know, I think, I think Kiefer is a little bit... Um, Schlocky. A little schlockier, yeah. I think he's more intense for German people because Ooh. he really? face, yeah, because Ooh. he confronts them with the grotesquerie of it. Whereas people like Basilis, who's a little more humorous about it, and someone he's like also a Richter, who's dead serious but very cold about it, I think is probably more appealing to German people. Like yeah. I went to Munich at one point in my life, and I saw a lot of Richters and a lot of Basilis and almost no Kiefer. Kiefer's really well represented in American collections. I don't get Swiss the, collections. I don't get the sense that the Germans care for him very much. Well, no, they don't. And I think it has something to do with that. And I think Americans like it because it is schlocky and illustrative. It appeals to it our tells sort you of like, hey, it was bad. Yeah, and you're exactly. Like, yeah, it was bad. And then you're like, wow, you love the trains, bro. And I think a German might say that doesn't really tell you anything about the feeling that's a cheap emotional device. And it is. Yeah, that doesn't mean I don't like Kiefer's paintings sometimes. Like, they probably look at it and be like, this is a little Geschlergenvergen. Yeah, they. I'm sure that there's a very long German word that describes something... Uh, feels a lot, but feels nothing. Yeah, 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 right. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, d- one last note on, like, the Met and exhibition stuff. I really like what they do in that little area of the Lehman Wing. I've seen some really choice stuff back there. Yeah, the Bierstadts used to live there for a hot second. Uh they were not Bierstadts. I think you're thinking of the church. Uh, they had a series of four Friedrich Church paintings back was there. Was that where for the iceberg was? Yes. No, oh, I thought those were. That were really amazing. Mm. They were like a 
the most extreme, some of the biggest church paintings I'd ever seen. Like, a oh, ball. they didn't even hang them. They just put them on pedestals because they were like, oh, no, this will fall down. Maybe we're talking about two different things. I don't want to get confused here because it wasn't that. No, they were hung up back there. But um, but yeah, anyway, I like what they do back there. They always they always hide a little treat that's kind of nice. It's that's a little weird. treat, and then you go to the left, and you're like, huh, a lot of, a lot of wallpaper. And also that really sick uh, like origin of the world e-painting with the dove and the circle. The creation of the world. Um, I think I know what you're talking about, but let's end the episode because it was good up until now. Okay. And I don't want to spend five minutes digressing. <sighs> <laughs> All right. Go to the Met. Yeah, go to it's the Met. It's open. It's really nice to see art. It's rejuvenating. It honestly is. And you know how nice it is to see it with no tourists? Oh. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Ooh, baby. I will say this. Ooh, uh, baby. You know, even under COVID, it's crowded but it's covid crowded you know it's way less than on a normal day but i also felt like people were a little more reverent than i'm used to seeing yes i felt like people were kind of respectful not everybody but most people people kind of seemed dressed up even it was Mm. very strange i felt like people were like oh this is nice Mm -hmm. of course there's selfie takers of course there's assholes but i felt in general the galleries were quiet it was nice it was a nice experience Mm -hmm. i thought that people were looking at art and like appreciating it they were present i did have a couple people who like i saw a couple of people were like on their phones like taking calls and i'm like of course can you not but like but they look like assholes rather than the norm which was really nice to see yeah 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 i was like ooh, we're back in a holy place yeah it did feel that way it's good it'll be good for you get out of your fucking house you want to say that in the mirror like one more time no Get out of the house. <laughs> Get out of the house. All right. Are we done? All right. Yeah, we're done. Oh, great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.